Yeah, how many of you have a marriage like that right there? That's what I'm talking about. For bonus points, who was the husband in that video? Does anybody know? Francis Chan. He's actually a pastor, and it's the thing that makes the video so funny is he's always so serious. He's such a great Bible teacher, and he's always serious, and then they make this video that's absolutely hysterical. So uh, actually, our family group's doing a Francis Chan video right now, so if you get a chance, he's a great communicator. We're glad you're here this morning. Uh, we're on week three of a series we're calling Family Matters, and, and we've been talking through kind of some foundational stuff for uh, building up a family, and, and last week we got into in some dating relationship stuff, which we'll get to uh, again in, in just a second, kind of recap some of that stuff. But we're glad you're here because we believe, and why we're talking about family matters is we be, because we believe every family matters. We believe your family matters. And, and our goal is, is to see family relationships uh, really become dynamic and, and to see transformation that happens in family relationships. And I'm convinced if we would just become committed to saying, I want to make sure that, that we, especially if we're the parents in the relationship, that we as a family start to do things right. And as our children start to grow up, they say, we want to have our family transformed and we want to start to do things right. If we would just do that in our individual families, if, if just the families that are happening in the churches across the United States right now, if we would commit to do that, it would transform our nation entirely. If we would just commit to say, God, we know that you have some outlines for families in your word, and we want to start as best we can living out that outline for our family structure and our family dynamic, that it would transform our culture entirely. And so we're talking about this idea, praying God transform families. For families right now that are broken, that need restoration, we pray for those families to be restored. God, because I believe that you're the only one that can change other families. And God, I believe you're the only one that can change my family. And so really our prayers as we are really still at the beginning phases of this, that God would transform some families right here. And I want to thank you for the, the graciousness which, with, with which everyone brought uh, the, you know, when we had the message last week. Because it might not have been pertinent to everyone's situation, especially if you're not in the dating game right now. Maybe for you that was a long time ago. And yet there are practical applications in that that we can take away. In fact, we still have the blocks up here. And we talked last week just about how when it comes to a dating relationship and, and especially who it is we're going to date, it can't just be an emotional decision. But we have to have some intellect involved. We have to think it through. And then ultimately we know that everything we do has to have a, a spiritual dynamic to it. We have to pray through it and say, God, is this really what we want? But the thing in the discussion that happened afterwards is, is and Chris Neff and I were actually discussing this this week, but really this whole idea, these building blocks that we have, isn't just about dating relationships. But it's really about any decision we make, especially when it comes to our relationships, that if we make our decisions today based strictly upon emotion, if we leave here and maybe someone gets us really mad, maybe someone cuts us off in traffic, and our response in, in being cut off in traffic is strictly an emotional one, we're going to make a decision that's really, really poor. And if I go from emotion to intellect, it might be a little bit wiser. But ultimately, if I begin my day by saying, God, I want to be as best I can because none of us are perfect. I want to be the most spiritual person I can be. I want to think through and, and see everything through the lens of, of Scripture, through the lens you see things that would change our relationships. And so even during this series, when we talk about a topic that might, might, might not be directly applicable to your situation, maybe for you it's, it's not a dating thing, but you say there's still something I can learn from this. And as we get into the second topic today, we take kind of a next step. Uh, it also might not be pertinent to everybody where you're at, but one of two things can happen. Either there are some general takeaways that you can take with you as, as you uh, try to apply it to your specific situation, 
or they're going to be people that come across your path that you're going to be able to give them advice better than go follow your heart and do whatever you want because we heard last week that that's not really always good advice but they were able to come and say hey i know that emotion's part of the game but there's also an intellect that god gave us and we should think things through and, and let me be a sounding board for you as you're dealing with some of the stuff that we think these things through and maybe as you're talking to your friend you have to bring up some spiritual conversations and say wait a minute before you you make these decisions especially when it comes to relationships before you make this decision let's really think things through from a spiritual level and i'm convinced whether it's dating whether it's marriage whether it's children if we live up here all the time listen I promise you this, at some point, if you're a parent today, at some point your children are going to get you really upset about something. If we exist here in emotion and they get us upset about something, then our response is to get fired up and to get mad and say, oh yeah, I'll show it to them. When our intellect says, that's never going to work. Like you get mad and yell at your kids and get so upset and I understand how frustrating it can be sometimes. But if that's where we live, if we live here, emotion only goes so deep. And so we say we have to think these things through a little bit more and ultimately we have to be guided by God's spirit in everything we do. Well, last week we kind of, really the pivotal verse, and it's going to lead into what we're going to talk about this week. But the pivotal verse was found over in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And, and it said this, and, and this is really important because we're going to talk about this a little bit further uh, than we did last week. But in 2 Corinthians, chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, it says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership is righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship is light with darkness? And if you heard last week, he gives a whole bunch more of, of you know, similar comparisons like that. And he talks about the idea that being careful about being unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now, this is a general teaching. It doesn't specifically say here anything about dating relationships. It doesn't say anything here about marriage relationships. It doesn't say anything about business partners. It doesn't say anything about hanging with your homies. It doesn't say anything about our specific situations. It just says, here's a good general principle for your life. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership is righteousness with lawlessness, what fellowship is light with darkness, and so on. And and the idea of being unequally yoked, as we talked about last week, is that when you had two farm animals that are plowing a field, and they're yoked together, and they're not yoked together equally. If you put two different animals, there's actually teaching in the Old Testament where the Jewish people were commanded not to yoke two different animals together, and there are spiritual implications for them, but physically they're saying that's not going to work if you have two different animals yoked together, and if they're going in different directions, it's definitely not going to work, because one of three things happens. If that's where we're at, if we're unequally yoked with a person, one of three things can happen. Because our desire in our relationships is that when it comes to a husband and wife, that they're yoked together, that they're, they're equally focused, going in the same direction, and that they're pulling with the same power. And if they're unequally yoked, one of three things can happen. Number one is that one is pulling aggressively, and the other has become dead weight in the relationship. One is pulling really, really hard. They're trying to plow the field. They're trying to, to do the right thing in their family. And the other says, I've just given up. I'm not going to try at all. And here's what happens. It would be easier for that person, for the other person not to be attached at all, because they've become dead weight and the work has become harder. If you have, if you have two oxen and they're trying to plow the field and one gives up, the one oxen is saying, I've got to pull this whole thing and we're trying to plow the field. And now you're giving up and I've got to pull you too. So the first thing is one can give up and they become dead weight. The second thing is they can pull in opposite directions. One can go in one direction and one, one says, I want to go north. And the other says, I want to go south. And at that point, 
they're getting no work done at all. Or the third, and this is what I think I see probably the most frequently, is that they're pulling, they're both pulling, and they're both pulling somewhat in the same direction, but they're not able to pull the same amount. One is pulling more aggressively than the other. One is stronger than the other. There was a story about a a farmer that I read this, this week, and, and the farmer had, he had an emergency situation, he had to plow this field, and he only had, he had one ox, and he, and he had, uh, I think it was another animal that was there as well, and they were unequally matched, but he said, I have to do this, and so we're going to go get a mule and an ox, and, and he said, we got to plow the field, so I'm just going to put these two animals together and do the best we can. And so they start to plow the field, someone came to him afterwards and said, well, how'd it go? And he said, if I was looking to have a circular field, I did really well. But one was pulling really aggressively and the other wasn't as much. And we're just going around in circles and nothing is happening. We're just kind of going around in circles. And some of you can identify because in your relationships, that's how it feels sometimes. You say, I want to pull. I want to be aggressive. I want to make sure that I am on fire committed to God. I want to make sure our relationship is going that way. I want to make sure our family is going that way. And it feels like, man, I'm pulling really aggressively. And the other person, they're not dead weight. They're trying, but their commitment level isn't there. And when we're unequally yoked, any of those things, any of those situations can happen. And, and listen, there's grace and there's mercy. When we make those mistakes, there's grace and there's mercy and want to fix those. And, 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 I'm, and, and if I shared my whole story about when, when we were dating and, and I had become a believer and, and there were some challenges I faced early on, there's no doubt there were times in our relationship that my wife had to be the one that was kind of pulling me along because I had a lot to learn, a lot to grow on. I'm not saying that can't happen, but I'm saying at some point, for the relationship to work the way it's supposed to, we say as husband and wife, we want to pull in the same direction with the same power because when, when people study those farm animals and, and see individually they can pull so much weight, but when you yoke them together and they're working t- together in the same direction, the power with which they pull is stronger than the sum of their individual parts. And that's what we want to see in our relationships. We want to say, when it comes especially to the most important relationship we're going to have outside of our relationship with God is the relationship we have with our spouse, we want to make sure we're pulling together in the same direction with the same amount of force because together we're going to be able to accomplish more than we can individually doing our own thing. If there was a guy, take it off of a spiritual platform for a second. We'll get to it in a second. But take it off of a spiritual platform for a second. And say there's a young guy. He just graduated from high school. He's begun the college years. And he's really, really excited about adventure sports. And he foresees in his future, he, he wants to find a girl and he wants to settle down. And when I say settle down, not really settle down because he wants adventure sports to be kind of the center of their relationship. And he wants to go on their honeymoon and he wants to go hiking and he wants to climb mountains and he wants to go kayaking and he wants to, to do all these adventure type things. He wants to jump out of airplanes, go hang gliding. Like he wants his life to revolve around that. And even secretly as he's in college, he said, you know, there's part of me that thinks it would be really cool. If I find a girl who's interested in this and, and we kind of do this, we kind of do our thing, and maybe we'll even start a shop that, that kind of caters to adrenaline junkies, and that's kind of the, the bent our relationship's going to have. At least the first 10 years of marriage, be committed to that and just kind of enjoy these years. Then he gets, he's in college for a little bit, and he meets a young lady, and they start to hit it off, and he really likes her. And the process of dating, he finds out that she has a tremendous fear of heights. And she doesn't want to do any of that stuff he was talking about. She's like, no, there's no way. I'm looking for a guy that I can really settle down with, and we're going to have nice, quiet jobs, not do anything crazy. I want to have a nice family and all this stuff. The guy has one of two choices. 
He can either give up the relationship. That's his right. They're just dating. He says, this is what I long for, and it's not, that's not where the relationship's going to be. He has a right to do that. Or he can give up the dream. And he has a right to do that. If he finds her and says, you know what, I love this adrenaline stuff, but I love her a whole lot more. He can do that as well. But chances are that both of those things are not going to happen. Because if you have one person aggressive and committed to this, and the other person says, I don't want anything to do with that, often it does not work. Now, people can change, again, a testament to that. But for the most part, that's not our desire to say from the outset that I want to date a person to change them. But the question we're facing today, and this is really important for a lot of people, is what if we're past the dating phase of our relationship? What if we've already dated, we've gotten engaged, and now we're married, and and I'm aggressively pursuing God in my relationship, but my spouse isn't? Maybe they're not a believer at all, and, and, and I've already kind of gone up against this, this passage in, in 2 Corinthians. I already, I already dealt with that, and, and I know that I'm, I'm now, I am unequally yoked with an unbeliever. What do I do in that situation? And before we want to judge and say, see, you never should have dated that person, and you should have married that person, listen, we don't know the backstory. For a lot of people, their story is, man, we're, when we're dating, we're both unbelievers. After I got married, I became a believer, and, and now I'm in this relationship. What do I do? Well, there's this verse over in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. And I want to do this. I'm going to put these verses up kind of next to each other in our mind for a second. Because we have this command not to be unequally yoked. And we have people who said, but I'm, I'm in a marriage relationship. And, and what do I do now? And we're going to answer that question today. And more importantly, we're going to, ask, we're going to answer the question, and how do I work that out? In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and, and I love during the wedding ceremony, every wedding I've done, especially over the last couple of years, we get to a spot where we kind of do the, the early formalities where I love the giving away of the bride. There's some symbolism that's, that's present there, and that's a big deal for fathers. And I talk to the fathers about that, and we give away the bride, and there's everybody's seated, and, and we read Scripture, we pray, and then we challenge the couple. And when the challenge is done, almost every time at the end of the challenge, we go into the vows. And before we repeat the vows, I read this verse we're about to read over in Ecclesiastes. And I say, listen, when it comes to your marriage... What we're about to read is, is a really big deal. And maybe for some of you, it's been a while since you were there at the altar, and, and, and we need to be reminded of this from time to time. But in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 5, it says, It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. See, at the moment in the wedding ceremony, when we go and we exchange vows, that's when things start to get serious. We're now saying, that I, and they repeat after me, I, and they state their name, take you to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness or in health, to love and to cherish, till death do us part. And they repeat that vow saying, I'm, I'm, I'm committing this vow to you, and I'm saying it before my friends and family, and I'm saying it before God. And God's saying it is better that you should not vow than you should commit to a vow and not fulfill it. So we have one verse that says, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And yet we have another that says, but if you've made a vow, you should live up to that vow. So what do you do? What do we do? Because there are times, and it happens from time to time, when we have teachings from Scripture. Where one seems to lead us towards one thing. And a lot of times it's because choices we made where we weren't consistent with what God had for us. But there are times we have these ethical dilemmas. Where scripture seems to teach us one thing in one section of scripture and another in, in, in another. And how do we handle the friction that happens 
between those two passages? A couple of things. The first one is, if there's a generic principle that's laid out, but a specific teaching, always default to the specific teaching. There's a general principle we read first in 2 Corinthians. It says don't be unequally yoked. It doesn't say specifically in this situation. It says this is a good principle to live by. But here's a direct teaching when we make a vow that we say this we can't get away from. So if we're going to err on the side of one or the other, it begins by saying I'm going to err on the side of this one. And so we say I'm going to live up to this vow. And whatever it is that I'm dealing with, whatever conflict it is that I'm going through, if it is up to me, and especially as we get into this idea today of, of one spouse being a believer and the other spouse being an unbeliever, especially if I'm the believing spouse in a relationship and it's up to me, I'm going to live up to every vow that I've said. For better, for worse, for richer, or for poorer. God, I want to follow you with everything I have. And I've made this vow. And I plan to live that vow out. And I know there are times that fights are going to happen. And I know there are times that emotions are going to get in the way. And most of the time when I see friction in marital relationships, it's because we can't get past this. It's because our emotion gets there and people use the same terms over and over while I fell out of love. I no longer feel the way that I used to feel. Emotions only go so deep. But the great thing is, God says, I'm not just going to give this, this other teaching that still is pretty generic to the situation because here it's not getting into, well, what if I'm committed to the relationship and the other person isn't? Or what if I'm on fire for God and the other person isn't? But there's this other passage we're going to spend some time on this morning. So if you have your Bibles, open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And we're going to pick up in verse 12. And it speaks directly to this situation we're talking about today. What do I do if I'm a believer and my spouse isn't? How do I handle that situation? What, what do I do? And so we're going to look at Scripture, and then we're going to finish it out by giving advice. Like, the, the Scripture is clearly, here's what you're supposed to do. Now, how are you supposed to make that work? 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 12, it says this. And Paul's right in the middle of teaching about marriage and some different topics. And he says this. To the rest I say... And then it puts in parentheses, I, not the Lord. Before you go any further, I want to comment on that. Because whenever we read Scripture, I believe that the Scripture is inspired by God. So as I read Scripture, they used to say, thus saith the Lord. I believe every time we read Scripture, the Lord spoke this word. And so when Paul says here, to the rest I say, then he says, I, not the Lord. How are we supposed to take that? If we were to back up just a little bit in verse 10... Paul says, he's writing to the church of Corinth, he says, To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. And then here in verse 12, he says, The rest I say, and here he says, I, not the Lord. See, Paul lived in a time and day where people had still, they were still contemporaries of Jesus. And Jesus had a lot of teaching on the family. And so when Paul begins there in verse 10, he says, This is not new teaching with me. This is not something I'm saying for the first time. In fact, I'm repeating something that Jesus has already taught us. Literally, on earth, Jesus in in, in human form taught us this principle in verse 10. But then he says, because of the specific scenarios that have played itself out over the past couple years, God is giving us a new teaching. You've not heard this from Jesus before. So he says, I'm saying this. Jesus hadn't taught this in human form. Jesus is still teaching us today. 2,000 years later, this is still his word. 
But Paul says, I'm not looking back to something that Jesus on earth has already said. But this is a new teaching because the family dynamics being as they are, this is a new teaching. And then he says that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. So men, right now, if if you're the, the spouse in the relationship that's a believer... This specific teaching, verse 12, is written specifically to you. If you're a brother, if you're a believer and your wife is an unbeliever and she consents to live with you, then you don't divorce her. That seems pretty obvious. It seems pretty blunt. This is what you're supposed to do. Verse 13 flips around and says, If any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. So in either situation, if the wife is a believer or the husband is a believer and the other person isn't, and if it's up to that person, then divorce is an option. If it's up to you, divorce isn't an option. And then it says in verse 14, For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. I read that, I say, wait a minute. Go back to verse 14a for for, for just a second. It says, if the unbelieving husband is made holy because of the wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of the husband, does that mean that if I'm in a marriage relationship and, and, and I'm not a believer, my wife is a believer, that just because she's a believer that I'm going to heaven, that's not what this teaching is saying. This, this teaching is saying it's going to get into it a little bit later in the scripture we're going to read. The scripture is saying if we keep doing the right thing, if we're the believing spouse in a relationship and we keep doing the right thing, or if we're the one who's stronger spiritually and the other person is one who's maybe not pulling as much has become dead weight, if I keep doing what I'm supposed to be doing, maybe because of the influence, maybe because of the impact of my testimony, through that testimony, that other person might become a believer. Maybe through the way that we have our conversations, the way I live my life, because of the way that I'm pulling us at some point, maybe because of that impact, because of that influence, that person will become a believer. Now, verse 14b, it also talks about children. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they themselves are holy. Not just with the influence of one believing spouse having influence over the other spouse, but also over their children. Listen, as parents, we have a responsibility. We have a responsibility to live out the vows that we committed to each other on our wedding day. We have a responsibility to reflect Christ in our marriage relationship and also be an influence over our children. Verse 15 it says, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. He says, listen, if it's up to you, if you're the believing spouse, if that's the situation you're in right now, and you say, I know I'm unequally yoked, but I'm going to stay in this relationship. I'm going to do my best to reflect Christ. And hopefully through that witness, this person could be one. And that's our goal. Sorry about that. I don't know what happened. I got excited. But if that's our goal is to say we want to do our very best to reflect Christ, we want to keep the relationship together. And the other spouse says, I don't want it. Then scripture is saying if the unbeliever partner wants to separate, 
Let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. You're not stuck there. God has called you to peace. I had a friend of mine, and this was years ago, but early on in, in, in his life, when he was in his early 20s, uh, he, was, he was a rock star. He, he was in a big band, and they were really making it big around Florida. And they were getting to be really, really, really big. And he lived the lifestyle. He lived the drugs and the drinking excessively and the partying. And, and, and because of that, he and his wife at the time, they fought like crazy. Like they were caught up in that lifestyle, and it became really aggressive. And, and, and eventually, in the midst of that whole lifestyle, uh, they decided to separate and get a divorce. A short time after that, uh, Chris came to realize who Jesus was and the grace that comes in Jesus, and, and he gave his life to Jesus. And he says, I want to go fix all the stuff I've messed up in my past, beginning with the person who I was closest with. And so he went back to his, his, his ex-wife now, and he says, I need to first begin by apologizing for my behavior when we were married. I made a bunch of bad mistakes, and, and so because of that, I want to come to apologize to you because I hurt you in our relationship, and I want to make that right. And the second thing is I want to reconcile our relationship. I want to get back together. I want to get married. He had the whole thing kind of planned out in his head what it's going to look like. Now, I'd love, I'd love if I could tell you. The end of the story is she comes and says, yeah, I'd love to work it out. I, I forgive you. And, and, and she, they get remarried, and she becomes a believer. It didn't work out that way. They had a lifestyle of drugs and partying and all the stuff that happened. And she comes and, says, and he comes and says, I'm sorry. I was wrong. I'm a follower of Jesus now. And she said, oh, so you're some religious freak. <laughs> I want nothing to do with you and never talk to him again. That was her choice. We can't control the other person. And the scripture says that God has called us to peace. And so our goal isn't to beat people up or to make them feel guilty. Our goal is God has called us to peace. And the key verse for me is this last verse. Verse 16. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, don't misunderstand the teaching. Salvation isn't up to us. But the teaching here is how do you not know that through your witness, through the way that you live your life, that the other person might not be called to salvation through your testimony. To the husbands who are believers talking about their wife, to the wife who are believers talking about their husband, that through the way we live our life, that they might become believers. And some of you guys know because that is your story. And this is a big deal. Because I know a lot of people, and it gets frustrating because... If, if, if we are excited and passionate about Jesus, believe that he died to, to give us salvation, to give us eternal life, and the person we care about most doesn't enjoy that, we want more than anything for them to understand it. And we want it to happen so much that we are ready to take our Bible and like hit them up over the head because we get so frustrated and say, I want you to believe so much. And, and, and we want to ram it down their throat. And that is never effective. When we do that, we're back to living on emotion but we say, how do I not have emotion in this situation? I want them to understand. And, and so we fall to hitting them over the head with the Bible and throwing Bible verses at them and making them feel guilty for not being involved. And, and all those things, and God can use our mistakes, don't get me wrong, but all those things are not really what's needed because God has called us to peace. But a silent witness speaks loudest. A silent witness before our unbelieving spouse 
speaks loudest. Now, it's still a witness. It's not saying I'm going to shy away from some of these things. But it's saying that I want to make sure that they know my faith is, is serious. I'm not going to back away from that. But I'm also not going to hit them over the head with it. And so real quick, if this is your situation, if this is where you're at in life, there's four things I want to encourage you to do. Four kind of challenges for us. We, we, we're supposed to stay together, our spouse, we're supposed to love them and, and continue on the relationship. And if they leave, there's not a lot you can do about that. But as much as I can, as much as it depends upon me, stay with them. And how do I do that? How does that interact on the day-to-day life? Number one, pray and be patient. Everyone wants this to happen so quickly. Everyone, you know, they become a believer and they say, man, God has saved my life and, and, I, and I want the other person to experience that because I care about them and I want them going to heaven with me. And, 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 and we want it to happen so quickly that we get aggressive and we're not waiting on God's timing. And God says, you know what? There's going to be opportunities and you've got to look for those opportunities. But pray first. You know when those opportunities come? Pray, pray, pray and be consistent in that prayer and be passionate about that prayer. If you come, husband, and your wife is not a believer, and you say, well, I prayed for her a couple weeks ago, and nothing really seemed to happen, and, and so I've kind of moved on to other things because obviously she's never become a believer, that's not passionate prayer. You say, man, on, on a consistent basis, and I would challenge you, especially the husbands that are here this morning, and maybe this week, sometimes I think we take prayer way too easy. Maybe this week it's getting on your knees and praying consistently for your family, saying, God, I want you to interrupt my family. And I want to be consistent. I want to be the leader in my family when it comes to this endeavor. And I want to be on my knees praying for my family as much as I can. Pray and be patient. Wait on God's timing. The second thing, respect the other person. Especially when it comes to being in front of the children. I don't think we mean to do this, but I see this from time to time where where people just, because cynicism starts to get in our relationships and we start to get kind of frustrated. And, and, and maybe today, maybe you're at church and they're not at church and they've gone out fishing and they come home and they didn't catch a thing and you're laughing at them saying, see, I told you you should have been at church. And they come home and they're watching TV and they get mad and they're cussing at the TV and, and, and you don't say anything to them, but passive aggressively you start, there's some stuff happening behind the scenes. There's, there's some sarcasm involved. Listen, sarcasm is the lowest form of humor. It's easy, it gets laughs, but there's a bite to sarcasm. So maybe you don't say anything to your spouse. Maybe you turn to the kids, though, and you say, see, that's why you need to go to church, so I don't don't want you to end up like your dad. I understand the sentiment, but we need to continue to respect the other person. Third thing, understand the role that you're in in the relationship. Next week, we've set aside all of next week, we're going to talk about roles and relationships, and I'm really excited about this. We're actually going to look at some things that Jesus did, and we'll look at his teaching over in Ephesians. But, but there's, there's, there's a role when it comes to relationship. There's way that, ways that God wired us, and those things don't just go away because one person's a believer and the other isn't. I heard two tremendous stories this week. Uh, we read in Scripture, we'll talk about this a little bit next week. The, the husband is supposed to be kind of the spiritual leader of the home. And there was a story about a wife. She became a believer, and she was really excited about her faith. And her husband wasn't, and so she started inviting some friends over to the house, and they're having a prayer group together on a weekly basis, and the husband really wasn't excited about it. And so at some point, the husband came to her and said, listen, I don't want all those people coming to our house anymore. And at first, she didn't really like it a whole lot. She's like, but these are my friends. I want them to be here. 
And she went back and she prayed about it. And God reminded her, even though your husband isn't where he's at, supposed to be at spiritually, he's still supposed to be the leader. And you need to respect that. And so she said, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and do that. And so she called her friend up and said, hey, next week can we start meeting at your house? So next week came time for that prayer group, and she's getting ready, and the husband comes out, and the husband says, wait a minute, isn't the group coming over today? And she said, well, no, you, you asked us not to meet here anymore, and I respect your leadership, and she's going to go over and meet at so-and-so's house. The husband responded and said, well, then I want to go. Why? Like, that's crazy. He didn't want to be involved when it was at his house, but because he saw there's roles in the relationship, and my wife is trying to do this thing right. I want to be part of something like that. On the flip side, there's a husband one time, he's at an evangelistic rally, and he gave his life to Jesus, and he became really, really excited. He said, I want my wife to have the same experiences. So he went home, and he said, listen, I was at this meeting, and they're doing another one later on this week, and I want you to go with me. And she said, no, I'd, I'd really rather not. And he was really fired up at first, and he kind of got frustrated. And he said, well, here's what I learned. I'm supposed to be the leader. <laughs> this isn't going well for him. Like, it's one of those moments where he uses the word submit <laughs> in a very bad way. <laughs> and he's like, you need to go with me. And, and she did. But the whole time she was there, her heart wasn't in it. He came back later on, he apologized. said, you know, I, I was wrong about the way I handled that. Through the apology, she eventually was, was one to Christ. There's roles in relationship. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about this next week, so I want to get ahead of ourselves. But even in a marriage relationship where there's, there's one spouse is a believer and the other isn't, there's still roles in that relationship, and that can be really, really challenging, but they're still there. And the last one is that as all this stuff is happening, as we're trying to do this thing right, for the people who are believing spouses, that are living with an unbelieving spouse, your witness is so important. The life that you live is so, so important. If that's not your story right now, if if you have a a spouse who's on the same page with you and you're pulling in the same direction, the same strength, I want you to do something. Commit to pray for some of your friends that aren't in that situation. Because I know when I go home today, my wife knows that I'm not perfect. When we have mistakes that we make, I come and I say, Beth, I'm so sorry for what I did. And she understands, man, Jesus has shown her grace and mercy, and we're supposed to show each other grace and mercy. None of us is perfect. But for the unbelieving spouse, a lot of times they'll use this against us and say, well, you're a Christian, you're supposed to act a certain way. And their threshold for, for giving in on that is really, really low. They say, I expect you to live a certain way. You say you believe this. They don't understand the grace and mercy side of it. And so they say, if you say you're a Christian, I better see you living that way. And if that's your story right now, I, I know the pressure that you face because I can go home and be real with my wife and say, I made some mistakes today and she's going to show grace and mercy. Grace and mercy, you might not be shown. And so as you're praying, pray for strength. Say, God, I need to live the best life I can live in front of my spouse. Because who knows, as we read in verse 16, how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? One of the greatest examples I've ever been able to be a part of in terms of seeing prayer change families entirely. When I was really young, I was a part-time youth pastor and I taught Bible at a Christian school. I remember we got together four times 
every week. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Friday's the only day we didn't get together as staff. And we did devotions together and we prayed together. And there's a lady, her name was Tina, and, and she would come. She was another teacher, and she would come on at least a weekly basis, if not maybe a couple of times a week. And she would say, I want you guys to pray for my dad. And she was much older than I was at times, so her dad was, was much older. And she'd pray for my dad. He's not a believer, and we've been praying for him. And, and I, for as long as I knew that situation, which was a couple of years, it was at least once a week she'd come, pray for my dad, he's an unbeliever. Pray for my dad, he's an unbeliever. And I'm sure for her, it was way before that that she started praying for her dad. And finally, one day, about midway through, I can't remember if it was her second or third year, they were teaching together. She came, it was after a weekend, and she came on, on a Monday morning. And almost here, she's like, guys, I got a huge praise. We've been praying for my dad for so many years. And this weekend, my dad went to church, gave his life to Christ, became a believer. And I remember, like, you kind of share praise, and everyone's like, all right, that's good. And we kind of moved on to the next thing. I'm like, wait a minute. Like, I started to think about what has gone in to this specific whole thing playing out. Because I don't know how many years ago it was that his wife became a believer. But she became a believer, and she was praying for her husband. And her daughter has now grown up, and she has kids of her, of her own. And she's praying for her dad. So at some point, the wife's influence affected her daughter, and her daughter became a believer. And now you have the wife and the daughter and probably other family members praying, saying, we want dad and we want granddad to give his life to Jesus. And as a family, they committed to this, and they were praying for it. And all those things came into play, and eventually one day they could come and say, finally, after years of being that, that silent witness, after years of praying for my husband or praying for my dad or praying for my granddad to give his life to Jesus, it finally happened. A week later, Tina came and said, I need you to pray for my dad. He's not doing well. And a couple of days later, he died. God is long-suffering. God is patient. For him, it took the witness of his family to literally just days before his death, before finally through the prayers and through their witness, they became believers. When we say families matter, it's because we don't know the stuff that we're doing right now that we think is inconsequential. We don't know the power of what we do. Our families matter. And sometimes talking to family can be really, really difficult, which is why, especially when it comes to an unbelieving spouse, a silent witness can often speak loudest. Let's pray.